0: This is Winter Is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Uriel Lepstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm joined today by Heidi Heitkamp, who served as the United States Senator from North Dakota from 2013 to 2019. She is the President of RDI's board, as well as a founder of the One Country Project, an organization dedicated to dialogue with, rebuilding trust and respect with, and increasing opportunities for rural Americans. She is a contributor to CNBC. And Heidi, I'm so glad to have you here with us today.
1: Terrific. Thanks so much, Uriel.
0: So I want to frame today's discussion by looking at the urban-rural divide and the impact it has on democracy in the U.S. and around the world right? I mean, this divide is actually not unique to the US. It's something that I think that we've seen all over the place. And you're in a unique position to comment on it. You've worked a lot with rural voters, both as a senator from North Dakota, and now through your work with the One Country Project. And, you know, first, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your background. What do you think the concerns of rural voters are? And how do you think they differ from those living in urban areas?
1: Well, this is one of my kind of frequent rants. Number one, I don't think the concerns of rural voters are any different than the concerns of urban voters. They care about the quality of the education their kids get. They care about public safety and making sure they're safe in their homes. They care about being able to make a living and have a good retirement. They care about health care. Now, where the divide comes is how do you deliver those things in more remote kinds of locations, and how do you deliver those things in a world where resources arguably are not equally distributed? And so there's a whole lot of argument about cultural divide, which I don't poo-poo. I don't poo-poo the cultural divide between kind of the majority of folks in urban America and the majority of folks in rural America. You see it politically, but functionally, if you ask them, what kind of America do you want to live in? I don't know that there are any differences, but yet because of our political polarization, because we have politicians that would rather divide than unite, that basically use fear-based tactics to get themselves elected, that divide seems a lot wider than what it is. And I think that when we're looking for solutions, we've got to bypass in many ways the political system because what happens is, It's a lot easier to scare people than it is to motivate and excite people about the future. And it's scare tactics, and it's been used on both sides, much more, I think, on the Republican side. But scare tactics are what people use in elections, and it sours people on our government. It sours people on the state of where we are right now in the United States.
0: So one of the trends that I think that we've seen with respect to this divide, as you noted, is that. Even though the concerns, I agree with you, I think are really very similar, the power bases for various political leaders tend to correlate with geography, right? And so the rise of populism often happens in rural areas, not just in the U.S., but, you know, when you look at Viktor Orban in Hungary, you know, Marine Le Pen in France, and even Vladimir Putin, right? Even though Russia is not even remotely a democratic country, and it's impossible really to talk about any kind of popular power bases there. But to the extent that we know anything about his popularity, it's certainly more common in rural areas of Russia rather than urban areas. Do you have any sense for why that is?
1: Well, first, let's redefine populism. I would have told you 10 years ago that I was a populist. Mm. Why would I say that? North Dakota has a strong populist tradition, but it was populism based on economics. So what did North Dakota do during the early part of our century, last century, when we felt like the Minnesota banks were taking advantage of farmers, that the grain millers in Minneapolis, I hate to pick on Minneapolis, but it all, it all started there, <laughs> were basically buying grain for nothing and capitalizing on the labor of so many great family farmers in North Dakota. We built a state bank. You know, that's pretty, pretty brazen. And we said, look, you know, we can't get banks to give us a fair deal coming out of Minneapolis. Let's build our own state bank. And it's become a model of economic development in North Dakota. What else did we do? We basically built a mill and elevator. And so our populism is more, you know, La Follette populism. And we have a lot of kind of the North Dakota Democratic Party is the North Dakota Democratic NPL party nonpartisanly. Minnesota is the Farm Labor Party. And so those are the residuals of an economic populism movement where we got direct election of senators from this movement. We got recall. We got initiative. We got referendum. We got direct primaries. So I always bristle at this discussion about populism.
0: So not to put too fine a point on it, but essentially you're defining populism sort of as being close to the people, right? Having the people be more directly involved in their government.
1: Right. And populism as a movement, when it goes out of balance economically you use every instrument, whether it's political, whether it's the co-op movement, which is big in North Dakota, big across the parts of the country that you see now that are deep red, that their response was really a collective response. Like, mm. what can we do and how do we use state government and the 10th and 11th Amendment of the Constitution, which gives states reserved rights to basically advance the economic interest? The populism that people talk about today is the populism of Donald Trump or more fairly, I think, Steve Bannon. And it's a nationalistic populism. It's America first. Now, I mean, that's a great slogan. Think about that. Who doesn't want to put America first if you live in this country? But how is that executed and how is that advanced? And, and so what you're playing to is the deeply isolationist kind of uh, history of the more red states that it's never worked out for us to go overseas and try and tell people what to do. Trump tapped into that, whether it was economic nationalism by basically imposing tariffs, doing things that the Republican party would have historically never done. You know, Trump tapped into this economic nationalism and this national security nationalism, and he didn't invent it, but he knew that there was a deep dissatisfaction in these parts of the country about, the role that the United States was playing globally. I mean, think about this. If you look at polling right now and you say, where are people most upset about border issues? The further north you get, the more upset people are. You know, and it's not the Canadians that are driving that. So I think we <laughs> have to kind of read Maybe they off.
0: will be soon, though, <laughs> <laughs> depending <laughs> on what happens yeah,
1: here. it <laughs> might be going the other way. Um, <laughs> the real challenge that you have, I think, Uriel, is... How do you bring this back to one country? How do we now redefine the purpose and goals of government and have the debate around how do you deliver these necessary services like public safety? How do you make sure that our kids are getting educated equally? How do you do that? And how do you have that conversation? And it, it is very hard to have a positive, inspirational message about what we can do when all the national media is coming at you and all of the political parties are coming with fear-based message.
0: So, you know, I want to push on this a little bit more, you know, the goal of the show, obviously we, you know, we talk about kind of this global battle between tyranny and democracy and in a lot of the countries that we look at. So, you know, perhaps populism then, you know, may not be the right term depending on how you define it. So maybe I'll reframe to say, you know, demagoguery or (laughs) nationalism, you know, maybe those are, are slightly better, but it does seem to be a bit of a through line, right? Whether you're in the US, whether you're in France, you're in Hungary, even Russia, where you know, a lot of these either actual authoritarian leaders or wannabe authoritarian leaders find their power bases specifically very much outside of urban areas. What is it, do you think, that resonates with the people there about these leaders?
1: Well, I think it's grievance. The idea is no one's talking to us no one's been out here. You know, they just seem to take advantage of us. They're worried about issues that either we don't care about or we don't agree with, whether that is, you know, transgender issues, whether that's gay marriage, whether that's, you know, all of the kind of pressure points. And so I think that for years, there hasn't been enough attention paid to this division. This division was growing it. Donald Trump just drove a Mack truck through it and, sure. you know, really, used this to his advantage and it continues to be used to advantage. But I think I'm never someone who says it's all somebody's fault. I think there's always two sides to every coin. And so it was interesting. I I heard a a talk recently of a talk, I shouldn't say I heard it, where a congressman was saying, well, you know, I could drop a North Dakota kid in the middle of New York City, and that kid would do just fine. But if I put a New York kid in the middle of, you know, Harvey, North Dakota, he wouldn't know what to do. I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? (laughs) Like, what, what does that mean? I don't know what that means, because quite frankly, I'm not sure that's true on either side. And so along with this movement, has been this idea that somehow we're the real America. And that's equally prejudicial. And that's something that I get criticized a lot for. But I just keep saying, why do you think you're better than the taxicab driver that you work harder than the taxicab driver in New York City or harder than the person who is standing at a kiosk selling magazines? I mean, I see hard work. I see community. I see family values all across this country. And when we have people exploiting that, saying somehow you have a value system that is better than these people, then there's this, you know, moral equivalency stuff that just gets lost. I mean, human beings are human beings. And we used to have, you know, the faith-based community really advancing. We're all God's children. You know, it should Mm -hmm. be equally upsetting to all of us what happened on the border in Texas, you know, in San Antonio. When I think about it, I can hardly believe that there is anyone in America who would say, well, that's what they get. But I think there are people in America saying, well, that's what they get for taking this risk. And so I have this theory, Uriel. My dad, World War II vet, right? My dad Mm -hmm. would have been on the farm. He would have stayed in North Dakota his entire life. But because of conscription, the draft during World War II, I mean, his best friends were from New York City when he served Mm -hmm. in the military. They were ethnic, mostly Italian. I don't know if it tells you something about my dad, but (laughs) we had this great melting pot where we all had this community goal, this service to save democracy in World War II. And we are coming out of that generationally. And we haven't found that same cohesive, you know, outside threat. I think Russia comes the closest to it which is why what's happened in the Ukraine is so interesting to me because it's really not an urban-rural divide. It's really not, a so far, a Democratic-Republican divide. It's, look, this is an external threat. It's going to threaten our way of life, our democracy, and we are going to join together to fight it back. And people who have tried to exploit it haven't done very well But as as a dividing point. And so I think that the lack of strong external threats has created an environment where we've lost the incentive to be cohesive and join together as a country.
0: So, you know, as the son of a New York City cab driver, I appreciate the cab driver reference.
1: I use cab drivers all the time because I think they're some of the hardest working people in New York City.
0: Well, you know, side note here, I mean, I worked in the mobility space. I worked for Uber specifically because of my father's experience as a cab driver. I mean, it was one of the most unsafe industries in the world. I mean, he had been held up at gunpoint, knife point, you name it, you know, in the 80s, in the 1980s in New York City.
1: And let me tell you what some more cynical North Dakotans would say. See, there you have it. It's a city that's morally bankrupt. Your dad was held up by knife point. So you can talk about any story. And how people hear the story, Uriel, is so fascinating to me. You know, because Mm. I could tell a story and I think I'm making one point. And based on people's life experiences, their perceptions, they hear something completely different. And it's that lack of communication, that lack of follow on that I think has further divided the country and created an atmosphere where we really, we really, and that's why when I started the organization, One Country. A lot of people had different ideas on what you would call it, you know, the rural project, whatever. And I said, no, my purpose in this is to get back to being one country, to make sure that we're politically not isolating ourselves into these camps, almost with a religious fever. Here's a frightening point. When I ran Hmm. in twelve. I think about 20% of identified Republicans or lean Republicans would cross over and vote for a Democrat. When I ran for re-election in 18, it was only four.
0: Wow. It's a hell of a shift. What do you ascribe that shift to? Was that just the nature of, you know, that election cycle post-Trump? Is there something more fundamental that is changing?
1: No, I think it's the demonizing of the other side. You know, if you're a Republican, you're a racist. Right. So that perception. If you're a Democrat, you're against hard work. You're against community values. You want to tear down the country and give it to the, you know, whoever is your favorite other category that week. And so I think when it became a moral choice, which political party you belong to, as opposed to an economic choice, as Mm. opposed to a kind of a policy. We all want the same goal, but we have different ways of getting their choice. That was. Kind of the norm when I started out in politics. I always tell people my base in politics when I first started out were white working class men and women, people who came from small towns and family farmers and elderly, and Mm. that's the Democratic Party has completely lost those people in rural America. And it's not just their fault. The Democratic Party needs to reexamine kind of where they're at. But I tell you, when the foundation is built on rewarding hard work as your theme you can bring people back together.
0: Right, so let's go deeper on that issue. And then, you know, we can talk about solutions. But first, you know, I wanna make sure we really kind of define the problem here. You know, you highlighted the issue of grievance, right? That that's what's dividing people to a large extent that, you know, people in areas that are further out, that are more remote, find themselves ignored and not addressed, not brought into the conversation. and And I think that there's a huge amount of truth to that. All over the world. So I think that's definitely one. Then, you know, something you said that I actually found really interesting was, you know, you could be thinking you're making one point, but people are hearing something completely different. And I think I see this a lot in today's political conversation where, you know, a lot of folks on the left right now will talk a lot about trans issues for example. And, you know, and I certainly sympathize with that instinct. And, you know, what they think perhaps that they're doing is, well, look, we are trying to bring in this marginalized community to talk about them in an inclusive way, you know, and so forth. But then what people in, you know, rural areas, you know, what people who haven't necessarily gone to liberal arts colleges are hearing is, oh, you know, They think they are holier than thou, right? They think they're better than me because they're using all this precise language or, you know, whatever that we don't talk about, right? I hear a lot of my former classmates from Yale actually talk about, you know, how do we define the people affected by Roe v. Wade, right? Are these people with vaginas, people with uteruses, et cetera, or do we call them women? you know and that was kind of a real <laughs> that was a real conversation that was a very-
1: <laughs> this is, you know and if rural america heard this oh my you know it's like how do you define woman i mean you know you saw it in the supreme court this is the kind of discussion that drives people crazy and anytime that you're playing on the playground of political correctness instead of like communicating you know kind of a thought or communicating an emotion you're going to lose and you know i go back to Uriel what my dad would have said, right? My dad would have said, how the hell is well, how are those people living your business?
0: Mm. Right? Yeah. I mean,
1: it's like, wh- why do you care? And that would have been, my, fa- my father wouldn't have been, you know, it probably would have been uncomfortable. That's not something. I mean, obviously they knew people who at the time they would have said were cross-dressers. But as long as it wasn't hurting you, we were taught it's not your business. Just let it go. And I think that's more the ethic of rural America. Is it your business? And, you know, it's interesting because in rural America, you're going to find people who are gay, lesbian, transgender. You're going to find people. And you know what? They're part of the fabric of our world and they coexist and they live very peacefully in rural America. So this idea, in fact, I, I remember there was a, I don't know if it was Stephen Colbert or who was, but they went into a small town diner in Alabama. And the setup was a woman was going to ask her girlfriend to marry her, right? And so in this small time diner, she got down on her knees and presented the ring and the whole place broke out in applause. I mean, there wasn't anybody saying, get the hell out. I mean, it was all, yay, good for you. You know, and so I think that stereotypes work on both sides, I guess is my point. But the more we intellectualize this, instead of making it about common sense, and human dignity, I mean, you know, we are way overwrought about language. I mean, honest mm. to God. Mm. And so when you use my dad's approach, how is that person hurting you? Why do you care?
0: You know, and I always say, I mean, these are the most controversial issues which affect next to nobody,
1: yeah. right? I mean... <laughs> well, they affect people who, who have record levels of suicide, death by suicide. I mean, these no, no, are. No. What I
0: mean by that is, like, the language that's used, right? Yeah. The language itself doesn't affect anyone, even the communities it's intended to help, right? I mean, yeah. if you're thinking about helping the trans community, I mean, there's so many things that could be done, but you know, what you call the "quote unquote" people affected by Roe, it's not going to help the trans community in any way, right? I mean, it's symbolic.
1: Well, by the way, Uriel, everybody's affected by Roe.
0: I would agree with that, by the way. You know, that's my strictly personal opinion, not the opinion of the organization. But my strictly personal opinion is... My strictly
1: personal opinion is everybody's affected by Roe. But, you know, I think when we get into this language debate and when people feel like no matter what I say, I'm going to get judged, I'm going to get judged for saying you know, the wrong word. And, and that's not fair because I'm not a racist. And it was interesting because I talk about this. Let's take guns, another very controversial issue. People say, well, why are people in your neck of the woods, you know, so addicted to guns? Well, we can have that conversation. But I will tell you every time the conversation on a mass shooter goes to guns, they think, well, I'm not killing anybody. I mean, why am I getting criticized for what this person did who obviously was deranged and should never have done it? Why is that on me? And, you know, that's kind of how you need to look at this, that when somebody says something, how does somebody feel judged? And I always try and basically, sometimes I do judge. (laughs) I won't deny it, but I do it on purpose or try and do it purposely, not accidentally. And I think in some ways, The the judgment issue is the other side of the coin of grievance,
0: right? Yeah, absolutely. When people feel alienated in some way, when they feel, you know, and on a purely interpersonal basis, I see this, right? Like If I feel like someone is judging me, I might get defensive without noticing. I might immediately reject the other person, or I might just say, I might just avoid them. I might decide, you know, this is not someone I want to be around. They're not a friend.
1: Uriel, can I suggest that when that happens to me, and i make those choices on how i react the stronger more defensive reaction means that they may have hit kind of close to home <laughs> maybe if somebody says something that's so if somebody says something about me that is so off base i just yeah whatever you believe what you want <laughs> yeah. but if somebody says something that maybe there's a little bit of truth to it i put up my dukes you know and you always when your reaction is that you have to wonder why am i reacting to this criticism in this fashion. And, you know, it's so interesting because we're having, you know, societal discussion here, but when it comes down to it, it really is about one-in-one. It really is about, you know, kind of how does the individual in these communities, how does that make them feel? What are their goals? What are their aspirations? And when, when you see that the goals and aspirations of families across regions is pretty much identical, then why is it that we're building an ungovernable country? And I think it's because of exploitation of fear. Who's going to stand up? It used to be that you could run on bipartisanship, you know, that, oh, well, you know, she's very bipartisan and that's positive. That's not a positive anymore. Then you're a capitulating compromiser. Take Liz Cheney. You know, I wouldn't agree with Liz Cheney on almost anything. I mean, honestly, she's one of the most conservative members of the United States House of Representatives, but yet she is leading with values. And so we can't just define our political goals as conservative or liberal. There has to be a democracy value in all of this. And, you know, how do we put democracy on the ballot box? People who will defend it versus people who will, you know, at all costs look the other way in spite of that, they know better, Will at all costs, do things that really hurt our country long term.
0: So let's look on the other side of this coin, right? Let's look towards solutions. You know, I think we've spent a, a fair bit here defining the problem. And I think we've aligned on a few sort of you know, really key points around grievance, around feeling judged, around being excluded, around having concerns not being prioritized, and even around the language that's being used, you know, when Democrats kind of use all this highfalutin language that's more appropriate, arguably, to a liberal arts faculty lounge than, you know, to the streets of, you know, whatever small town you might be in, that alienates folks. And so, you know, you run another organization which, you know, strives to address some of these problems. And what insights do you have about how we can help bring in some of these folks from more remote areas who feel like they've been left out?
1: Well, there's big and small solutions. Okay, here's the big solution, universal public service. Mm. whatever that looks like, but it can't be performed in your own location.
0: We have another advisory board member, General McChrystal, who's a big proponent of this.
1: Yeah, And partly because he's seen in the military that uh, proximity breeds cooperation, right? So if you take someone who is isolated or has lived a pretty isolated life in one location and every bit of analysis that they've done about the state of the world is driven by a 100 mile radius and quite honestly fox news or whatever biased news station you're listening to that's not a unifying kind of formula and so i was in tanzania and and a lot of people pronounce it that way i always say tanzania tanzania a couple of years ago and i met a guy who was the park director at a very significant Park in his country. And, you know, he talked about the colonial line drawing, right? These lines were drawn by European countries. They didn't make a lot of sense culturally. And so the first president of Tanzania basically invoked public service and moved people from one village to the other village, really tried to create a more homogeneous definition of what it meant to be a Tanzanian. And, mm. and and to some extent, it worked. And I kept thinking about that example of how that helped build stability in that country because people experience what every religious tenant in the world says you need to experience, which is before you judge, walk a mile in someone else's shoes. You know, try and understand their situation, you know. And I think that we've lost the ability to... Have that experience, and we may have one hit wonders. By that, I mean, oh, you know, you may have gone on an exchange for a month or so, but we don't have a reliable, consistent national dialogue. Um, The second thing is we need to elect leaders who are uniters. Now, that's a little tough because fear works pretty well. And so, leadership matters in this goal. And I think, you know, and I'm not knocking anyone, but one of the things that, the reasons why Barack Obama, against a backdrop of a country that probably is still pretty resistant to electing people of color, is he had the speech of inspiration and uniting. You know, I always say, you know, without that speech in the Democratic Convention where he said, we're not blue America, we're not red America, we're the United States of America. And that kind of message, although it got Looted without an effective counter-message, that kind of message from leadership needs to be given. And you don't hear it. I mean, you hear Biden to some extent do it, but the other side, and I will say the other side, is very much into demonizing the other, right? Mm. Who's the other? Whether it's caravans of Mexicans at the border, whether it is hordes of African-Americans marching in the street in Minneapolis, and look how horrible that is, not understanding kind of the history or the legitimate grievance that they have. And so I think that, you know, those are two kind of big ideas. The little ideas is the more we can talk about issues socially and build an understanding from the grassroots. I met a woman who started a nonprofit called Thread. I don't right. know how she's doing. Thread is, it was an effort in Baltimore, during the Baltimore riots. What she noticed is people in Baltimore were really pretty isolated. You know, you think you have an urban-rural divide, but there were pockets of communities in Baltimore that never talked to each other. And she just organized dinner parties and brought people (laughs) in from different communities as her way of trying to build a united Baltimore city. And so there's little and small ways that we can do this, but we have to have a political will to do it. And we have to see, and Uriel, to the point of Renew Democracy, we have to see the damage that this division is doing to our democracy. We have to realize that this politics of grievance and fear is not who we are as Americans. We've never been successful when we've been afraid of each other. We've only been successful when we've been united to confront problems. And we've got a lot of geopolitical problems out there that we need to unite, whether it is economically the resurgence of China and building a sphere of influence for democratic countries, whether it is the threat of aggression from a dictator like Putin who thinks he can move with impunity. And I'll throw in a couple other bad guys that I think are bad guys, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, I mean, I know the great work that we've been doing down there, great work that's been doing to try and keep democracy in a country that used to be very democratic. So we've got to recognize we're losing ground, that we all need to, as democratic countries and people who believe in democracy, unite together to understand the dynamic. And in many cases, you know, the old line, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us,
0: Hmm. is true so you know one of the challenges that i think we face you know when we're talking about trying to build a successful democracy is that these questions of process these questions of community of society they tend to be somewhat theoretical right i mean and and sometimes you get the emotional elements right you get the language of you know we're not the blue states or the red states we're the united states and sometimes you have that language of unity and it can be really empowering and of course, before that, I mean, you had Ronald Reagan. Also, I think leverage a lot of or, that. Or George
1: language. Herbert Walker Bush. It's morning in America. Ronald Reagan. You know, a thousand points of light. I mean, that's right. Tell me what the inspirational message was the last four years.
0: It's been one I of I could exclusive fear. I could,
1: I could go through each presidency that I lived through and tell you what I thought the inspirational message was—the overall positive theme. We've gone through four years where there's been no positive theme. It's been them. Versus the other. It's us versus the other. And with horrible, horrible results.
0: I absolutely agree. And obviously a lot of what RDI tries to do is we try to bridge that divide, right? Like Mm -hmm. the whole point is we want to depolarize to a certain extent where we are. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, language of unity. But the challenge that we've been facing in any case, you know, and we've talked about this, is that, you know, when we talk about democracy, you know, we talk about things like that, it tends to be somewhat far off, right? I think a lot of people sort of think about it in the sense of like, it being on an ivory tower, versus the things they care about day in and day out, you know, it's inflation, it's price of gas, right? It's the stuff that they feel on their wallet, every time they go to the grocery store. And, you know, now I'm looking at the January 6th hearings, right? I mean, I believe that these are one of the most consequential political happenings, political events in decades. They are absolutely critical, in my view, to the defense of our democracy. And yet, You know, for folks who, unlike, you know, us, they don't follow the political news day in and day out, you know, for them, I think a lot of them might look at this as, well, just another thing that's happening in the Beltway. And, you know, so first I wonder, A, is that your sense of, you know, folks who live in more rural areas, like, are they following the hearings? B, do they care? And then C, you know, is there anything more that could be done to try to make issues of democracy as compelling or almost as compelling as the price of gas?
1: Let's start out with how people look at what's happening in the January sixth committee. I think that a lot of people say, "Yeah, we knew he was like this," but you know, we weren't paying five dollars a gallon for gas. I mean, the mistake people make about Donald Trump is that they believe people adore him, and there's a percentage of people who literally would—you saw it—would lay down their lives for him, right? His own self-selected militia that he had storming the Capitol, which is exactly what that was. But fundamentally, most people are like, they don't like him. They don't want him to be their neighbor. But they would say, look, the trains ran on time and the government seemed to work pretty well. And the secret to Donald Trump's success has been, he tells you who he is. (laughs) Mm. There's no mystery. People say, can you believe this? I say, what? What? You haven't been watching for four years when he said people in Charlottesville, there were good people on both sides. He's been telling you for years who he is. He's not hiding it. And it's interesting because Annie Duke, who's also on our board, who I adore, I'm sure Annie Duke could do the analysis, behavioral analysis on communication. But there's been a lot written about how when somebody is completely transparent, They're more trustworthy, even though they're saying things that are just crazy untruths. It's so interesting. Like people have a hard time believing things that are just so outrageous. I mean, you know, I've been reading a lot about what happened during the Holocaust and the criticism of people who seem to go so willingly. And it's like, in what world would you ever think that this was legitimate? What people were hearing that anybody would ever do this. You know, and so in some ways, and I'm not likening Trump's rhetoric to, you know, what happened in Germany. I mean, I would never do that. But I think it is informative in terms of how people look at outrageous things and immediately dismiss them because they're so outrageous, no one would do it. And so, you know, I think at this point, you know, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. But the immediate point, and you heard it from this young witness when Cassie said, look, you know, I was proud of the work that we did. I was proud of the policies. We could have an argument about that, I think. But, you know, (laughs) at the bottom line is, you know, they want the government to function and function in a way that reflects their values and reflects their economics. And they were satisfied. And so I think when you say is democracy on the ballot, I think the other thing that we're doing at RDI is equally significant, which is exposing what happens in other countries that aren't democratic, Um, Mm. our dissident project. And that, you know, having the ability to bring now electronically dissidents to the local rotary, to the local Elks Club, or to local chamber, to talk about what happens in a country where you've seen democracy erode, where Mm. you've seen democratic values erode if they ever were democratic to have lost the ability to dissent. And so I think the mistake that groups make is they think they can win this fight intellectually on, you know, Zoom's for college campuses when the fight really needs to be brought to the local VFW. And I do that on every organization that I'm part of. I say what are we going to do to come to North Dakota and talk about civics and talk about the importance of democracy. So that's why I'm very bullish on the work we're doing with the dissidents, trying to think of how we can get more exposure to that work. But also, you know, just really having conversations in communities that aren't going to hear those conversations with language that really um, expresses the concerns that legitimate people have.
0: So in other words, you know, and obviously I'm biased uh, about the dissident project, um, the front lines of freedom, but the idea behind it was to try to convey the message of democracy in much more emotional and visceral terms and ways that people can really directly relate to. And so I guess sort of what you're getting at when you reference it is that, you know, what I think many people have so far failed to do you know, when it comes to talking about American democracy has been to communicate the issues, facing it in a way that people feel is directly relevant, right? That people feel directly touches upon them. Is that, is that kind of a fair? think,
1: Think about my dad's experience again. Democracy was something that had to be fought for. I mean, you saw the direct threat and you saw the indiscriminate violence that went with that direct threat. And, you know, the greatest generation saved democracy for the world, right? But they did it in a collaborative way. They did it by coming together in common cause and common purpose against an external threat. Now, like I said, you were, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us. You know, how do we defend democracy against internal threats? And not just right-wing threats, but kind of a dismissal. Of the value of the rule of law and what we have. You know, I always say when people say, well, you know, he built this business by himself. I, you know, I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett when he said, well, he won the Ovarian lottery, got born in this country where we have rule of law, where we have courts that will defend contract rights, uh, courts who will defend your property rights. You know, that's not the rest of the world. And you can't yeah. build an economy, in my opinion. I'm, a, I'm an unabashed capitalist. I think it's the mm. best system. I think democracy is the best system. I think democracy with capitalism is the best system because the incentive for innovation and creation is there. But you also have the built-in you know, kind of common uh, backbone and structure, whether it's our transportation infrastructure or whether it's our legal infrastructure, whether it's our political infrastructure, that those things all have intangible value for every corporation and every person trying to make a living in, in this country. And so we need to redefine the values of democracy. It's not some ethereal, let's talk about it at the local college. It is, right. th- these are the things that come with democracy. These are the things that come with self-governance. And if you lose those things, you lose not only you know, this moral experiment that's been so successful and continues to evolve and become better, but we also lose the ability to be successful economically. Now, that's not saying that people haven't been left behind. And, you know, I think it's interesting. I was just talking to a congresswoman who's in a tough political race, and she went to her African-American community and said, what do you need? You know, how can we make things better for you? And to a person, They said, we need public safety. We need security. No one will come to our business if they think it's too dangerous to be at our business. I mean, think about that. And so, again, that commonality of goals that we just ignore. But so many of these things are critical to success in America. You know, remove barriers. Barriers are not fair. But also deliver services equally. You know, it should be just as safe to do business in her district as it is to do business in North Dakota.
0: Well, I could not think of a better note to end on than this one. So thank you, Heidi, so much for joining me today. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player at reneweddemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.